safe, affordable housing is critical for health and well-being and helps individuals and families have stability and better employment and education outcomes. For too many Alaskans, the high cost of rent or a mortgage causes financial hardship and vulnerability. What are the solutions to this chronic problem? We'll talk with Alaskans focused on answers today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by Northern Air Cargo, providing cargo transportation to nine Alaska communities. NAC offers options including cargo charters to get freight where it needs to be. Northern Air Cargo, serving Alaska since 1956. Invasive plants and animals threaten Alaska's environment and economy and can spread to new locations by hitching a ride. Anyone can help prevent the spread of invasive species by remembering to play clean go, removing all plants, animals, and mud from boots, gear, and vehicles before entering and leaving recreational areas will help stop invasive species in their tracks. Learn more at playcleango.org. This message sponsored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. If you've never been housing insecure, having your own safe space to keep your things and sleep without fear at night may not be something you think about most of the time. But for people who struggle to find adequate housing and have limited funds, physical limitations or other constraints, that stress can be all-consuming and create a cascade of other challenges. The housing market is so tight that rent rates have jumped, and at the same time, mortgage rates have increased dramatically. Builders say new construction doesn't really pencil out. Here to describe the multiple efforts underway in our state to address these needs is Meg Zalatel. Meg is the executive director of the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness, and Meg is also an Anchorage Assembly representative for Midtown Anchorage. Jason Bockenstead is the executive director of Anchorage Affordable Housing and Land Trust. And on the line, both uh, Jason and Meg are in the studio with me today, and on the line is Jasmine Boyle. Jasmine is the chief development officer for Rural Cap. And Jackie Peda is the president and CEO of the Clinkett and Haida Regional Housing Authority. Welcome, all of you. You can also join us, Alaskans. Are you struggling to find an affordable place to rent or buy? Are you considering leaving the state? <coughs> Excuse me. Are you considering leaving the state because you can't afford to live here? Is your community working on creative ways to provide housing? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422, 550-8422. And also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's start with the current picture, first in Anchorage and then across the state in in rural areas. Meg and Jason, what do you calculate for need in Alaska's largest city for numbers of housing units uh, that are needed currently? And what do you consider an affordable price range? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I think you can kind of break down the housing need a couple of ways. So we need 
tens of thousands of housing units in order to create a reasonable market where supply and demand are better leveled out so that we aren't um, crunched on supply, which then raises um, prices up so high. So there's that. And then we know in order to um, end homelessness in Anchorage, we're about 2,200 units short. So there's a couple of different ways, and that's kind of who would access that housing. Um, and affordability is a really great question. I think it's one that that word gets pushed around without always a clear definition. We can talk about area median income. We can talk about a lot of things. But let's talk about attainability. What can we do to make housing attainable for someone who needs it? Um, and what we know right now is a lot of our professionals, nurses, police officers, teachers, housing isn't necessarily attainable for them without them being rent burdened, meaning they would pay over 30% of their income to access a two-bedroom apartment. So you're talking about professional people. Absolutely. And and really, this problem has persisted for a long time. When I came to Alaska in 2005, um, I was a young professional, and I paid about 30% of my rent for a two-bedroom apartment, um, and then also paid back my student loans. Um, but the professional opportunities outweighed kind of those considerations, but it's so much more exacerbated now. The rents are even higher, and wages aren't keeping up. So this attainability issue is really important. I think the affordability issue or where we can start to put definitions around that are really when we're talking about using housing vouchers or particular subsidies. And so to be clear, just in the Anchorage area, the Anchorage Bowl, you're saying the current need is at least 2,200 housing units, but the, the larger need to have a more healthy market of people kind of competing for spaces on a less stressful level would be tens of thousands of housing? Yes. We have not built housing to keep up with demand or um, housing projections throughout the country um, for decades. We just haven't been building. Um, we are building um, approximately um, – we're building, I think, less than um, – 400 units a year statewide um, builds about 700 units a year. The national average is 1,500 units a year. Mm. Matsu builds about 2,000 units in a year. So we are just really lagging behind. Um, and that affects, you know, low supply, high demand, high prices, and it makes it unattainable. Jason, pick it up there and uh, talk about what you're seeing in this regard. Well, it's, uh I agree with everything that that, that Meg just said. I, you know, one of the, the the interesting or more eye-opening things that I've uh, read here recently was there was a recent U.S. Economic Well-Being Survey of households that was conducted by the Federal Reserve, and it asked a number of questions. But some of the results showed that nearly four in ten Americans lack enough money to cover a four hundred dollar emergency expense. And when asked about non-emergency expenses, 18% of Americans said the largest expense they could cover using only their savings was under $100. So when you take that and then combine it with everything that Meg just said about kind of that housing affordability, we're really in this, you know, difficult situation where, you know, one medical emergency, one broken down vehicle, um, you know, a, a lost job from, you know, a, a two-income household could really put, 
you know, individuals behind the eight ball very, very quickly to the point where now they're two months behind rent and they're at risk of being evicted. So, you know, again, to, to Meg's point, like we obviously need a lot more units, um, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, my organization is trying to do is, is create um, and, and bring more affordable um, housing units online for those that are in that low and extremely low income category. And we'll talk more about what that means and what that looks like in a bit. But Jasmine and Jackie, I want to get your thoughts in here now. Uh, Jasmine, start us off with the northern region of Alaska and what you're seeing there for need in communities. Uh, I was looking at some of the the uh, numbers that came out in the Department of Labor report and the uh, amazingly high level of rent in certain places, $1,600 in Bethel. Uh, what are you seeing in the northern part of Alaska for housing needs? And then uh, Jackie, we'll turn to you for Southeast. Thank you, Lori, and um, others for sharing what we're seeing in Anchorage. Rural CAP, of course, uh, has statewide partnerships and a a deep interest from our board of directors and our staff, frankly, to further engage community partners on the work of um, addressing rural housing needs, particularly off the road system. I think universally across Alaska, we're seeing a significant increase in cost to build, uh, challenges around getting workforce, particularly during subsistence season, able-bodied people who have expertise uh, to build, also local expertise. So it's not just, can you wield a hammer? Do you know how to be an electrician? It's, do you understand how to do that work um, in different climates and, and a changing climate? Um, we're also looking at building with um, the reality of changing wildfires, the coastal erosion, the typhoon, uh, that, that is um, pretty recent to most of us that work on the western coast and in the northern part of the state. If you were to talk to Griffin, who runs the Regional Housing Authority um, up on the North Slope, he would tell you that um, the last I spoke to him, they are hitting over three quarters of a million dollars to build a single family home. So could he build? Sounds like he can. Um, but there's one barge a year last I heard going up there. So when you think about the timeline and as others shared earlier, the accessibility of that build, we're pricing people out of the American dream, right? That that gift we have given ourselves as a country to dream of home ownership or community development. Um, so there is an issue with cost. Uh, again, there's an issue with some of the funding that's available. And if that works in rural Alaska, um, we just had the Secretary of HUD in Anchorage very recently, um, and she hosted a roundtable with Senator Sullivan. And there were uh, many experts in the room sharing that HUD is making money available for housing development, but it doesn't always crosswalk neatly to the needs of our rural communities. Uh, my favorite example is a new grant that identifies um, places of deeper poverty in Alaska as a priority to build new homes, um, but requires that there is a city to access that grant. Well, not all rural communities have a city or a borough in a formal way that translates to that grant access. So I think part of the problem is, is there money to build? The next piece of the problem is um, who can afford what is built? 
And then, of course, the further we go off the road system, there's the incredible complexity of uh, who owns the land. Mm. Um, so we can talk about the north, but I think there's certainly specifications about what you're building and how you're building and the timeline for that. But I think that the challenges seen across the state are often universal. And I'll also piggyback before turning it over to Jackie, that when we talk about housing insecurity that looks like homelessness, we also need to be aware that in rural Alaska, that is overcrowding, not street homelessness, um, because people are not going to survive outside in most of the state. Um, in Anchorage, we have different amenities like paved roads and heated entryways and alleyways that make it a little bit more feasible for a human. But we also see the challenges of homelessness look different in the rest of the state. And I think it's important to acknowledge that when we talk about affordable housing, there's not enough anywhere. But that does put pressure onto urban migration, right. uh, particularly for those on a fixed income. You come to Anchorage for a home and you don't know ahead of time that there aren't apartments to rent or homes to purchase. AHFC, Alaska Housing Finance Corporation, has been telling us for a long time that they anticipate a big housing crisis in 2031 that they call the Silver Cliff, which is we have a rapidly aging nation and we, excuse me, a state, and we have for a long time that is concentrated in the valley and Anchorage in many ways in terms of density. We do not have enough homes for people on a fixed income who want to age in their community of origin. We definitely don't have enough units that are uh, compliant for ADA and people who have different mobility. And that's Anchorage, which is arguably one of the most resourced parts of the state. So when we talk about the needs of our elder or those with mobility challenges or health challenges outside of Anchorage, Juneau, Fairbanks, that conversation continues to get more complicated. So all of us are having a hard time renting and buying. But if you have other vulnerabilities, it gets much harder very quickly. Um, and I'll certainly turn it over to Jackie to complement that with Absolutely. all of the work she's doing in Southeast. Yeah, thank you for that, Jasmine. Uh, a very broad description of a myriad of problems facing Alaskans related to housing, not just in urban areas, as you noted, but also extreme challenges in rural parts of the state. Jackie, what are you seeing in Southeast in this regard? I want to echo what Jasmine had to say. I think what you're seeing across the state is what we're seeing in southeast alaska we have the same challenges of the you know high cost of construction um having most of our communities you know our uh, only transportation is either by boat or by plane um it's not any different than many of the rural places in in, in northern part of alaska and i think sometimes people forget about that um i i think that we still have the same challenges with access to land most of the land down here in Southeast Alaska is the, you know, the national forest. Um, and so uh, outside of what lands have been uh, selected by native corporations, there's very little land accessible for housing. Um, and, and of course we have our wet climate, which um, also has a different dynamic to how do we make a, a housing affordable and being able to maintain them and deal with mold and other kinds of issues along those lines. I think one of the things I want to add to the mix of what she had to say, though, was how important it is for our rural communities to survive. And so most of our communities up till, the, you know, that when COVID hit and new money came available, but up to that point, most of our villages hadn't had any new housing in 20 years or more. 
Mm. Um, and that doesn't allow for communities to survive, new families to be able to stay in their communities. And you see an outpouring of younger families leaving the communities, which means that they're taking with them any of that economic security that the community could have. They're taking with them the potential of closing schools um, in, the, in the communities and all of those things that young families bring into a community. Um, and, uh, and, so, and that was one of the things that we were really worried about um, here in Southeast. We wanted our young families to be able to make the choice to stay culturally connected to their community, to their families, to their traditions, and to their subsistence lifestyles. And moving to the more urban hubs, whether it be Juno or Ketchikan in Southeast, um, doesn't always mean that their life is better um, and that their housing needs are addressed. Juno's overcrowding is significant. Um, it's, it's one of the top priorities of the city and borough of Juno is trying to deal with how do we bring affordable worker housing into Juno? And they've been willing to partner with us at the housing authority knowing that this is a, a, an issue that they cannot solve alone. It, so you, yeah, making sure that there's housing available, not just for our families, but for the professionals that need to live in our communities, the teachers, the healthcare providers, the VPSOs, the you know public safety officers, that's also critical. And so we see a compounded problem with keeping those um, employed, uh, professionals in our community as well as our families. You raise such an important point about um, cultural continuity and uh, the the needs of rural Alaska to keep that intact and thriving into the future. Uh, Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau are cities, like cities, you know, pretty much anywhere. But the real culture and uh, Alaska is in rural Alaska. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and today we're talking about the need for housing across the state, the chronic need and growing crisis in housing in Alaska. In the studio with me today is Meg Zalatel, who is the executive director of the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness, and Jason Bockenstead is the executive director of the Anchorage Affordable Housing and Land Trust. On the line with us today is Jasmine Boyle, who is the chief development officer for Rural Cap, and Jackie Peta is the president and CEO of the Plinkett and Haida Regional Housing Authority. You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255 if you have a question about housing in your region or programs that might be available, or maybe your community's engaging in some very creative ways of, of getting more housing available for people who want to move there or stay there. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the, the local number is 907-550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. I mentioned the State Labor Department report earlier. Uh, that September report shows that rental prices have jumped an average of 7% from last year. Uh, the biggest increase in a decade. The range was 3 to 16%. Ketchikan saw a 16% increase in rent. Yikes. The highest rent average was in Bethel at $1,600. Within those numbers are some interesting trends. Alaska's rates slowed compared to the rest of the nation in 2023, 
And in-migration is starting to trend up. Out-migration is slowing. What does all of this say to you about how housing needs are changing and what the next 10 years may look like? Meg? Yeah, so that sounds positive, but without supply, what we find is rents really are, for what's attainable right now or what's available, um, much higher. So we, um, as part of our um, work on the assembly around housing um, reform, what we could look at, we took, um, you know, uh, can a teacher, you know, live within 1.5 miles of a school. And we went and looked at what the rental prices for two-bedroom apartments were around a school. Um, and they were $1,700, $1,800. So that's an average. That means that there are rents that are much, much higher that would be available at the time we looked, right? And so I think you have to really think about that. So if you are a professional, you're doing the in-migration, what's available to you at the time that you're arriving? Um, I heard an anecdote um, by someone close that a professional nurse came back to Alaska, was moving back to Alaska, doubled up with friends for six months until she could find a suitable living arrangement on her own. And it wasn't for lack of means, it was for lack of availability. So I think until we really start to work on the availability issue, we're not going to see significant changes. Um, rents may stabilize, but I don't think that there, um, sub 3% is like basically no vacancy, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to see, um, you know, landlords being able to charge. The market's going to, to take what the market can take because there's just not a lot of, around. Jason, uh, for people unfamiliar with your organization, describe what you're working on for affordability and housing and and talk about the land trust piece. Federal Recovery Act dollars, more than $10 million, you advocated for setting up the land trust and purchasing three properties. Tell us about what you achieved through this to provide more available housing and a little bit about the organization. Yeah, great great question. You know, I, I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, there was a significant investment um, from the, the federal resources that the assembly uh, appropriated dollars um, to to purchase um, the, these properties, along with you know very um, uh, you know a, a very large contributions from our philanthropic partners in, in our community as well. And essentially, what that um, allowed the land trust to do was, as as you mentioned, we purchased three properties, and um, all of the properties together equate to about two hundred and seventy one units, new units that uh, once uh, the final property is is finished with the the rehab and the renovation um, will be a, a huge amount of new units brought in brought online just within the last you know nine or ten months. Um, that's a that's a huge deal. Um, but you know we've also been very intentional in terms of figuring out you know how do we actually get at the issues that are are facing people in terms of getting into something that is more affordable. You know, we've worked with the assembly, we've worked with the, the coalition and, and other partners and and have come up with, you know, what have been those kind of barriers to entry into into housing and, and how did we respond to that? So a, a couple of examples there that we've kind of taken and, and run with, which is, you know, a lot of folks, you know, they've maybe been evicted in the past or maybe their credit score isn't all the great. So, you know, one of the decisions we made, we don't look at rental history. We don't run a credit check. 
um, we we don't ask for first and last month's rent. Um, and, and then our security deposit is $250 at every single one of our, our, our units. And, and all of those things taken together have taken a lot of barriers off. I mean, for, you know, the, the individuals that Meg or, uh, you know, and, and Jasmine have talked about so far, you know, coming up with upwards of $3,000 when you talk about first and last month's rent and a security, security deposit, deposit right. is, it can be very difficult. Well, especially um, given the statistics we were just talking about earlier where people can't come up with $400 or even $100, how are they going to come up with thousands just to move in. Exactly. So we, we've we've tried to be very intentional in terms of removing as many barriers as as we possibly can. Now that's not you know everything that needs to be done, but I think we're seeing you know a huge influx of of folks that you know hopefully they'll stay at our properties you know as long as they want. I mean it is permanent housing. They they sign a lease. They do all of those things. But if nothing else we're helping them hopefully reestablish, you know, a good rental history, um, improving their credit score through kind of on time, you know, payment of, of affordable rent. And, you know, maybe that allows them to in the future move to something um, a little bit more expensive or a little, a little bit bigger. Did you model your organization on other land trust housing organizations or how did you decide what would be most effective? Well, that, that was a, a lot of work that, uh, you know, Meg and, and others kind of helped with um, about 10 months ago. But I, I do think that one of the things that we kind of looked at is, you know, this creating it was kind of in response to the urgent need in our community just to provide more affordable housing units. And we did take a look at a lot of housing and land trusts in the lower 48 because these are very very common um, throughout the, the the country, and what we tried to look at is, you know, you know, how are these being run? What are the best parts of of all of them, and how can we bring that here? And that's kind of what we did: is we 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 said, look, we're going to try to. Um, again, look at where they're struggling in terms of, you know, bringing on additional units and we're going to do things a little bit differently. And, and all of the kind of stars aligned right at kind of the right time when there was, you know, a huge, you know, surge in, you know, federal investments in our state and our philanthropic partners had kind of all come together right at the same time and said, hey, we want to try to actually solve or, or, or bring more affordable housing units online. And it just kind of all the stars aligned right at the same time. Jasmine, you talked about this earlier, uh, the silver cliff. Uh, the affordabil affordability issue, of course, is not new here in our state. This study on risk to elderly Alaskans, it was looking at the future, a silver cliff in 2031. But did COVID bring that sort of distant concern much closer? <laughs> and is it sort of arguably here? <laughs> I don't know if Alaska Housing has, has released a new study. And they were pretty comprehensive with the data, if I remember. I'll tell you anecdotally, I think we've all experienced housing insecurity in ways that I hope none of us anticipated. Um, we're seeing homelessness hit people that I don't think ever expected to experience homelessness, let alone chronic homelessness. Um, and certainly Meg and Jason can talk about Anchorage, um, but I can share that on behalf of Rural Cap, 
we were getting calls uh, just a few months ago from Fairbanks and Juno about their homeless shelters for adults being full and unable to care for people that are wheelchair bound or who require medical assistance and wanted to ship them to Anchorage and was wondering what the options were. And of course, then the Sullivan shut down. And I understand that there were significant disruptions um, in the last several years that have created a myriad of more complicated realities for the most vulnerable people in our state. Um, but I also continue to appreciate that we have decades of a too shallow mental health support system across the state, um, challenges around you know, getting people stable housing when they come to larger cities for complex medical care, um, but we've also known for a long time, if you talk to the people that run our large adult shelters around the state, that many communities don't have a shelter. Um, the Matsu Valley, Valley continues to ask adults experiencing homelessness to come to Anchorage for services. So I think we need to recognize that our mental health challenges, our elder care challenges, including assisted living capacity, um, our housing insecurity it's statewide and it manifests where we can see it because we have population density in ways that kind of confront our day-to-day -day desire not to sit with the reality of homelessness. But I'll also say that the last few years taught us how close most renters are to housing insecurity. So we certainly saw the magic of innovative programs um, through federal and state funding that allowed us to tackle some of these challenges. Um, the eviction moratorium was very helpful in assuaging some of this, but prior to the economic impacts of COVID, we had disability experts telling us that there was a two to three wait list for people who need ADA compliant apartment rentals mm. in the largest city in Alaska. And that was before COVID. Mm -hmm. So I, I think when we begin to talk about the economics of housing insecurity, it's easiest to say if you already have another type of vulnerability, housing insecurity is going to make it worse. If you're already struggling paycheck to paycheck, having a down payment, two months rent, moving costs, being able to relocate your life for your job and your kids in school, that's harder when you have less money to do that with. Absolutely. Um, we're also, as Meg said, landlords can raise the bar these days. So I think I'll keep saying housing benefits all of us and increasing the housing market around our state benefits people looking for high-end custom homes as well as elders who are looking for a stable rental that is close enough to the hospital for regular doctors but we've got to get affordable housing across the state all of us win our economy wins our workforce wins if we can just get across the finish line and its cost that seems right. to be the biggest barrier more times than not. Absolutely. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the future of housing and availability and the need for more in Alaska as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska needs more quality, licensed child care providers. If you're interested in starting a child care business, Connect with ThreadAlaska.org for support and guidance. There are several resources to get licensed and launched in Alaska. A licensed facility opens doors and opportunities for the business owner and creates a safer, more engaged place for children. You can make a lasting difference in the lives of children and their families. This message sponsored by Thread. 
Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the very, very intense need for new housing and renovated housing across the state today about uh, the need for making sure that elders have adequate housing, that people with physical limitations have adequate housing, that new families and professionals wanting to come to the state can find a place to live. You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. 550-8422. Let's go to the phones for a moment. Bruce is in Juneau. Hello, Bruce. Hi there. So I've noticed there's a lot of containers uh, vacant and stacked up here around Juneau. And why can't containers be made into homes? I think volunteer organizations could work on that. Um, But it seems like it just isn't acceptable or something. Um, Just a thought. All right. Well, um, we've got housing people here in the in the studio with us and on the line with us. Has that been attempted, uh, Meg? What do you know about efforts at that? Is does the expense of converting outweigh the potential benefit? So it's complicated. Um, it's not just about conversion. Um, so manufactured homes or modular homes, I think, have come a long way, um, and. I know, particularly in Anchorage, our building code um, is very strict, um, and that's for really good reasons, public safety reasons. Sure. Um, and so we have earthquakes here. Correct. And so some of these forms of housing, like perhaps converted containers, haven't necessarily been tested to know whether or not they would meet the building codes. Also, you have to weatherize them. Um, that's a key piece, um, and I think that that not taking that into consideration from the outset causes a lot of the issues we're now seeing even with aging housing stock, that they are really expensive, energy inefficient, um, or they're just not going to last. So I think there's some potential there. I know there's housing innovation around manufactured homes, um, some 3D printing um, conversations for up in Nome. There's the Cold Climate Research Center looking at doing some of these things. It's just I don't think ever as simple as simply saying some volunteers can convert, um, particularly where you do have local building codes or other things that you need to comply with. All right. Well, thank you for that. Jason, anything you want to add there? Well, let's let's continue on with the phones then for a moment. Thank you, Bruce, for the idea, the suggestion. We're going to go to David in Anchorage, who has some concerns about zoning changes. Hi, David. Uh, Hi. Um, I'm just uh, wondering why the uh, assembly is doing this in such a uh, a super speed level. They've proposed uh, in the last four months three separate zoning um, rulings. And even though we were told at once that they said that, well, it's dead, all of a sudden it's alive again. They're having a quick hearing and then a possible vote by the 26th. I think that they haven't taken enough into consideration about the hillside. I mean, there's a lot of water problems. What happens to people who have wells up here? Um, the uh, erosion that uh, occurs. Um, there are quite a few problems if you're trying to overbuild up on the hillside. Uh, also, 
a question I would have for the assembly is, you know, they allowed um, Eagle River and Girdwood to sever themselves from this bill, but not Hillside. I mean, that doesn't sound like equal protection to me. Anyway, those are my concerns. All right, David, thank you. I do need to remind everyone that we don't have the assembly on the air today, but uh, uh, Meg, you are part of the assembly. I know you're here in your capacity as executive director of... All right, you're here to represent your role in assembly. Sorry about that. I, I was confused for a moment. I'm sorry. No problem. Um, so a couple of things. Um, so we had originally um, proposed um, a zoning reform in May, and that was really to kick off a conversation around the housing crisis. Um, and, and we did that. And in doing that, we've seen more conversation in our community about what tools may be in our toolbox to drive um, development, more housing stock, which is really um, the role of the assembly is to really run at this question of what barriers in government exist um, to the house to housing development. Um, through those conversations, we learned um, that the land use designations already exist in some community adopted plans, and so we refined the proposal. Um, the proposal right now is called the Home Initiative, and it is housing opportunities in the municipality for everyone, and it does presume to move from ten residential zoning districts down to five. Um, the intention here is to now send this over to the Planning and Zoning Commission for more um, input by the Planning Department and the Commission, particularly as to what um, edits need to be made to our broad policy documents, the Comprehensive Plan and the Land Use Plan. Um, and then if this passes, it rolls out over time where, particularly on the hillside, the zoning district there gets the opportunity to go through a comprehensive process to determine what are the appropriate variables to apply to the lots, slope, septic, you know, those things. So we can hopefully get predictability um, that makes sense. And so there aren't a lot of entitlement processes which drive up the cost of building and the time in which to build. So that's where the process is right now. Um, the hearing on the 26th, the intention is to then refer it over for additional work at planning and zoning. All right. Thank you, David. I hope that helps you better understand these things. Jackie, I want to turn to you. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, HUD, Secretary, HUD Secretary Marcia Fudge was in the state recently. Describe the transition from the days when housing meant you applied for a HUD grant and houses were built primarily by people from outside the region and largely for rentals, to today when you're employing sweat equity programs and changing the relationship that people have with their homes. Talk a little about that and what that transition means and what do you think the significance of the HUD secretary being here is going forward? Um, thank you. Yeah, I think it was, we were delighted that she came and certainly we want to invite her to come to rural Alaska um, to experience a little bit more. And I think it really is important that policy decision makers really see it because they don't understand um, or really can't probably comprehend as much until they actually see what it's like to ship in building supplies and materials and to plan for them or some of the environmental review appliances that we have to deal with in the rural parts of Alaska, which really escalate the prices. Um, but I want to, going back to that first part of your question, when you said, how has things changed? 
So prior to 1996, we had a HUD model of housing development, which a lot of housing stock in Alaska was built under where HUD prescribed, uh, whether it be the mutual self-help or the rental, and we applied for grants. And if we got them, we got a large grant. We had to, I call it the kind of boom and bust that Alaska's known for, you know, from the oil days, but we go into a community, bring outside um, contractor because there was nobody that really what had the capacity to build the number of units that we're going to build in, at one time, and then those contractors would leave. We've decided here, at least at Clinkett and Hyde, and I think a lot of housing authorities across the country, is that's just not a sustainable model, and it doesn't really build the skill sets of Alaskans. And we want to be able to keep jobs in Southeast Alaska, in our villages. Um, and so what we've done, taking advantage of the influx of money, COVID dollars, we used ours all for new construction. It was important to us that we create a model where we can build sustainably, and that means environmentally friendly as well as affordable, all those components, you know, up to about two houses a year in each village. That allows us to have a smaller um, construction crew that can work on them, be employed year round. Um, we started with apprenticeship programs. We got, were able to get them certified and, and move up in their skill capacity. But in order to make that happen and change from a highly rental market where Alaska Natives were, you know, if you look at all the data, we're a high percentage of, um, of, of renters versus homeowners um, to bring in home ownership. In order to do that, a couple things had to change. One is in the community itself, we had to be willing to recognize that you still had to make a housing payment. These weren't free houses. These are really, you have to make a mortgage payment. Um, and the mortgage payment was not gonna be on a sliding scale with your income anymore once you got in, that's your payment. And we did, we've also um, put in a, a lot of effort for building in financial capacity building, wanting to make sure that not just the people who are participating in the programs, but our communities at large get to be financially secure and independent and really understand, even though they may have be of lower income, that they can manage that income and to, to really learn those skills necessary for um, you know, in, improving their credit. And then of course, we couldn't do these programs, these home ownership mortgage programs without all of our partners, but particularly about the funding is the cost of infrastructure in rural Alaska is one of the biggest impediments to affordability in housing. Um, and, you know, even though we look at the infrastructure, um, new monies that with the influx of new monies on infrastructure, the majority of that money came to deal with aging infrastructure rather than expanding new infrastructure so that we could build um, and expand housing subdivisions or address new construction in, the, in our villages. So we're still have that big gap of a lack of the new infrastructure necessary to expand our housing, uh, our housing and the cost of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the last thing I just wanna say is at our housing authority, we partnered with, um, we created a community development financial institution, um, a CDFI. We've seen local CDFIs across in Indian country, across the nation, Make bigger different make big differences in small communities, and you know our CDFI is doing that with their um, uh, you know credit building loans and other kinds of things, building capacity, and these are the ones that are offering these 
these home ownership, these mortgages, but that have had have flexibility in designing them to meet the the um, the participants' needs. Um, and we kind of think that having that kind of flexibility makes it a little bit easier to provide affordable housing. All right. Thank you for that. We are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll look at some emails and more phone calls as we continue our conversation on meeting the challenge of the need for more housing in Alaska as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community, and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope, there's joy, there's love, there's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org slash share your strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. The seafood industry puts thousands of Alaskans to work across the state. From fishermen and scientists to mechanics and shipping agents, the seafood industry sustains Alaska's economy all year long. Alaskans take pride in the work ethic that drives the state in ways big and small. Seafood sustains Alaska. This message sponsored by Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the need for more housing and renovated housing throughout the state. There is a chronic need for housing in Alaska. Had a couple of emails from folks concerned about short-term rentals. Jane, who is the co-director of programming for Choosing Our Roots on the Kenai Peninsula, says she has worked with unhoused people for almost 10 years on the Kenai Peninsula and has seen a huge shift in the housing market she says, a lot of people think the solution is to build more houses and apartments to meet the needs. While that is needed, it doesn't solve all the housing problems because of the extreme number of Airbnbs and other short-term rentals, hundreds of them she's citing in the Homer area. And a, a similar email from Brandon, who writes from Anchorage, that he recently looked up Airbnb data and shows approximately 1,200 Airbnbs in Anchorage. And of course, that's just Airbnb, doesn't look at other short-term rentals. Uh, he says it's clear that short-term rentals are playing a significant role in the nationwide housing crisis, not to mention driving up costs for renters and prospective homeowners. A small minority of individuals own short-term rentals. They profit at the expense of our communities. People, uh, the other email was saying, is there is it possible to put a limit on those? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, it's really great hot topic. Um, and the assembly is looking at this. Um, myself and member Solt um, are looking at doing something similar to what Representative Gray in the uh, House has proposed, which is a registration platform for short-term rentals. Let's get an accurate count and accounting of the number of short-term rentals. Um, and let's ensure that there are local contacts for those if we're having issues with them um, and start to identify the number we have, um, who owns them, so we can get some better data around short-term rentals. Um, right now, the municipality collects bed tax on those, but we don't have really specific um, information. Um, and then let's see what policy levers we can pull after we have that kind of data. Um, the proposal by Mr. Solt and I um, 
proposes to have a registration fee for your short-term rental um, so that we can at least make the registration process self-sustaining. Um, and then we want to have a conversation um, with the state legislature for um, can there be some kind of tax incentive, property tax incentive for long-term rentals? So mm. locally, we can't enact tax incentives um, that aren't available from the state. But as part of this work around addressing short-term rentals, can we figure out a long-term rental incentive? So in other words, if someone had a uh, an apartment in their home or above a garage, an accessory dwelling unit, that maybe they could get a break on their property taxes if they filled that rental with someone who lived there year-round. Yeah, like um, your residential exemption here in Anchorage. So if you can show that you have a year-long lease with someone um, or a multi-month lease, then you can claim the exemption. All right. Thank you for that. I want to go back. Just jump in real quick because, you know, this is not just an urban issue. It's also a village issue. In many of our villages, this has started to become a problem because anytime a property, if it ever did come up for sale, it's quickly captured by someone who lives outside of the community and who's opening it up for, you know, a fishing um, experience or something else, rather than allowing it to be for people that live in the communities. And it's really starting to be a challenging problem in communities like Yakutat and Cake. Um, So I just wanted to let you know, it's not just an urban issue. Yes, I'm glad you made that point. That's very important that tourism and other visitors are also affecting uh, what's available in rural areas where there are already so much more restraints and uh, restrictions on what's available. Let's go back to the email for just a moment here. Doreen writes, Fairbanks has a large military population that lives off base and many landlords base their rent prices and tailor their listing to military personnel. Is the state holding the military responsible to ensure there is housing available for their own soldiers and families to not create a larger housing shortage problem within the community. Now, we don't have anybody representing the state on this call, but uh, does anybody have any information related to that? Maybe not. That might be a question. I know this came up when the secretary, when we had the meeting with the secretary, um, we had representatives across Alaska talking about various issues. And the one recommendation was making sure that the military was working closely with the community to not create those kinds of impacts. And they felt that the communication could be improved. I'm not an expert in this area, but I'm just sure. sharing that information. And it's really around right. any major federal investment that's going to bring up folks to you know, um, work through that infrastructure development. We need to be building into those packages the ability to make sure there's housing for the folks who are going to come and effectuate that. We need to be better on the front end with the planning, and I think that's better federal, state, and local coordination. Absolutely. A very important point. I want to get to the phones for one last call, but before we go to that, I just wanted to get clarity. We've talked a lot about the struggle for people who are at professional levels of employment, finding housing, people that are are making a a good living wage. But what about the cutoff for low income? What is considered low income? If you're looking at housing that's aimed towards folks who are on the lower economic rung, what is that cutoff? What is the income level that people have to be under? So, so for, for our properties at, at the trust, we have essentially set the limit that you have to be at 80% or under the area median income. And the number that I'm about to say is probably going to surprise a lot of people because it is much higher and encompasses 
a lot of the professional workers that that Meg and and Jasmine and and others have described, um, you know, over the last several months. But you know, for Anchorage, the Anchorage area median income for our properties at eighty percent, you have to make less than sixty two thousand six hundred dollars. That that really is a stunning number. And and then if you're a couple or you're a married couple, that number is actually seventy one thousand five hundred and fifty. So it, it kind of goes up, and then if you if you have one child, it's eighty thousand five hundred, is is kind of the the cutoff at eighty percent of area median income. And as Meg was kind of describing some of the work that um, you know the community has done on this is is looking at you know what does the average you know teacher make? Well, I think the average teacher makes about fifty six thousand dollars. I mean, so the average teacher in our community would qualify for any of the low-income housing that the trust provides, you know, in our community. It just seems like we really have to adjust those numbers. And and so a police officer, starting police officer, makes about $73,000. And so if that individual is married and still a single-income household, that police officer would qualify. And just Just incredible. Uh, but important for people to get that clarity. Um, let's go back to the phones. We just have a couple minutes left. Mark is in Bethel. Hello, Mark. Yeah, hi. I'll try to talk fast. Um, I'm on the city council here in Bethel. Um, if you look at Zillow for our zip code, 99559, it's clearly Zillow gone wild. Um, there are pretty old houses for sale between 380 and well over $400,000. Uh, new houses are pushing... 700,000, so there's absolutely no chance that a young family who comes here for work, and there's plenty of work, uh, can can invest in a home. And you're right, 1,600 bucks a month is about the uh, is about the rent. So my uh, two things. First of all, I hope you'll do a show about village housing because that's a whole other smoke right there. And um, I'm wondering if there's any sort of technical assistance, whether it's a, a, a conference event or something where municipalities like Bethel that have uh, planning and zoning ordinances but no, um, no building codes can get some ideas on how we might be able to revise our uh, zoning uh, to help uh, uh, promote more affordable housing, more livable housing in, uh, in rural hub communities. All right. Well, Thanks thank you. Much. Thanks, Mark. I saw Meg nodding as you were talking. So, Meg. Yeah. Um, so the municipality of Anchorage has been looking for this kind of technical assistance as well. And HUD is actually taking a pretty affirmative role in um, trying to help municipalities and localities address um, regulatory barriers to um, housing and zoning. So um, what I will do as one city council person to another is, Brian, I will look you up and I will help connect you with that resource. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, in, in just like our last minute here, are you in the city especially, are you working with Alaska Mental Health Trust to develop housing on some of their local land holdings? There's at least a couple of acres next to their office at the intersection of Burgaw and Northern Lights. Seems like there could be lots of multiplex housing built in that area. The trust land is offered, you know, to create 
um, either a benefit for the beneficiaries mm-hmm. um, or money for the beneficiaries. Right now it's offered for sale, so that is the current tact. Um, I think the municipality is looking at its own land holdings um, for this purpose as well. Um, needs to continue to be part of the conversation, but so far um, no affirmative offers have come forward to say, hey, this would be really great and suitable. But even if the land cost was defrayed, it's the infrastructure development um the cost to put the infrastructure and the sewer and the water um, that will quickly make any project not pencil um, for uh, reasonable rents. So against that backdrop in our final minute here from all of you, give me a line on what you want to see the state and federal government do going forward. Jason. Well, I, I think uh, for for me, it's it's uh, you know kind of twofold. I, I think one of the the most important things for you know, the the folks that are definitely in that low income category is the you know federal, state, and and local governments. I think need to do um, you know a better job of more efficiently and effectively pushing out the resources that you know come from HUD and other places sure. in the forms of you know grants or or vouchers or things like that i think a lot of times you know what we're seeing is that you know there are folks that are definitely in need but the time that it takes them to get from first application to say right. i need this help to when it it, it becomes actually available to them is way too long. That, you know that that really puts them really behind the eight ball. All right, Meg, quickly. Um, yeah, from the state perspective, we really need state investment um, to undo the decades of underinvestment and disinvestment in social services systems. Um, you know, locally we're trying to handle a lot of the housing. We need help with the rest. And uh, Jackie and Jasmine, what uh, what would you like to see quickly from state and federal leaders? I want to see infrastructure, funding for infrastructure for new development that make, will make it affordable and vouchers in the villages. All right. Jasmine? I think everything has been covered. We, we just need the connected <laughs> tissue to connect these opportunities around infrastructure and housing. There's lots of money. We just need to make it work for our all of our Alaskan communities. That's such an important point. There is a lot of money out there. And so uh, getting it directed in the right way, removing some of the barriers that uh, Jackie and others noticed, uh, revealed about uh, what it takes to get some of these applications in is also important. Thanks so much to my guests, Meg Zelatel, Jason Bockenstead, Jasmine Boyle, and Jackie Peta. Thanks to you for listening. Our engineering team today was Chris Hyde. Our producer was Madeline Rose. And on the phones, Tobin Shelby helped us out. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.